Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. Well, welcome to the Author's Dozen podcast. And with us here once again, doing the little sign language wavy hands of applause is Chandler Birch. Hello, Chandler. Hey, Paul. How are we doing? I'm doing so well. I can see you're shacked up in the closet there. Yeah, this is uh, this is my extremely advanced recording studio. Um, yes. The, uh, the closet of my house. I mean, you, do, you don't even need those clothes. You just bought them for uh, padding. That's actually correct. Yeah. In pandemic times, I actually do not wear clothing. Um, I walk around 100% nude at all times. I am being 100% facetious. I'm not actually walking around completely <laughs> naked at all times. Um, I, I, but... I, may have, I may have guessed that. <laughs> I I can kind of judge how much the pandemic has melted my brain when I have to think, do I need to put on pants to walk this trash bag from my back door to the garbage can that's in my backyard? Because there are people on the other end of the backyard. This is way more detail than y'all need (laughs) about my pants decisions. But, you know, this is this is where we're at. This is what people tune in for. I really don't know of any other reason why they would be here. So. Thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. So uh, for those of you who are not caught up on your Author's Dozen lore, Chandler was our our first interview. We spoke about uh, his novel and his journey of getting published and, uh, you know, his journey as a writer and everything like that. I don't know if I've told you this, Chandler, but it is our most listened to episode of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you're popular. Yeah, yeah. So either you are or I am or it's some combination of us. You know, it's uh, it's the amalgam. The uh, um, oh, no, I'm completely dropping the ball here. The Dragon Ball Z thing where you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The fusion. Uh, The alloy is stronger together than any two of the metals on their own. Amen. Tell me a little bit about the book that you read for this podcast. Right. If you want to, if you could just give me a little bit of a rundown of what the book entails plot wise. Okay, so I uh, I picked up Miserable Company, um, which cool. is the book that when I saw the premise on uh, the feed, basically, uh-huh. uh, I was I was immediately into it. I did not have a ton of time to like look into it uh, right when it dropped, but right. uh, the the premise is that we have Eric, who is like the typical cliche chosen one, who everything goes right for, and he sleeps with everyone and he kills <laughs> he has an incredible destiny and he's just he walked straight out of the sword of truth books um but <laughs> the uh the second line of the premise is that this isn't a story about eric this is a story about his buddies um the the buddies are felix the shapeshifter gwen the psycho elf big b the emotionless golem and siren the accursed demon chaos princess chaos demon princess I, i'll get it correct there's a lot going on there. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, but uh, when Eric's destiny gets derailed, those four have to fulfill his destiny on his behalf. So, like, right, right immediately from the from the premise, you can tell, like, this is going to be deconstructionist. This is going to be an ensemble. This is going to be kind of irreverent just based on the voice in the premise. Uh, and it's and it's got some Terry Pratchett energy. So, like, if... Uh, if if I were the Roadrunner and you were Wiley e. Coyote, this is the thing that you would put under a like a box with a stick on it in order to trap me. Uh, like I know, right. I can, yeah. 
Um, this is this lies at the exact intersection of all of my interests. I've been a huge fan of deconstructionist fantasy ever since Digimon season three, which is the greatest deconstructionist mm. work ever produced. I can't say I've had the pleasure. Get on that sign. Um, it's how can I call myself a writer if I haven't? <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Digimon yeah. No. The D- uh, Digimon season three, the season about depression and uh, real life invading on your your fantasy. It's wow. great. It uh, it's uh, one of those works that, uh, like, when you look back in your history as a writer, it's like, oh, this is the thing that I imprinted on that has been mm-hmm. informing all of my decisions ever since then. And I mean, I'm also a huge sucker for anything that is Terry Pratchetty. Um, mm. Ever since my senior year, when my English teacher saw me reading a Douglas Adams book and was like, "Boy, have I got a trip for you!" <laughs> and then loaned me every single one of the Discworld books. Uh, over oh, the course man. of my senior year, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, this is this is extremely primo my stuff. Yeah, I have I've been working my way through his uh, his various series. Is I don't remember. I believe I read The Color of Magic sometime in this endless year. The premise definitely uh, takes a little bit from Terry Pratchett. The question is, you know, did it did it measure up in any way? Yeah, absolutely. So we're gonna start off with uh, what I liked. Um, I mean, I've, I've already talked to death about how much I was in love with the premise, but I was super, super in love with the premise. Um, and I, I really loved the way that your authorial voice would occasionally just slip into like very sly asides, uh, that are meant to just, just be blinking. You, you'll miss it jokes, uh, <laughs> that are not really trying to call attention to themselves. They're just kind of there, um, and just being very quietly clever, uh, which I really appreciated. There are there are several times that I legit snickered throughout uh, throughout the book, which is pretty rare for me. Things can really cook when when your voice is feeling confident. Like I said, the story felt very early Pratchett, and I can't stress enough how much that is about the best praise that I can give to anything. It's sly and it's frequently clever, uh, and importantly, the themes are positioned against fantasy's kind of most prominent excesses: racism, misogyny, fascism, ubermenschism, etc. And Part of why I love that is my personal politics and part is just how much I groove on deconstruction, but all of that worked for me. Um, and lastly, there's really good, solid character work underlying the whole piece, which is good because it is an ensemble piece. And if your character work doesn't work, then the whole thing falls apart. Uh, like all books are kind of three-legged stools of plot plus setting plus character is how I've heard it said. And I think I would confidently say that the character work in this book is probably the the strongest of those legs on the stool, um, mm-hmm. which is very important. That's that's a really good place to start. The exciting uh, part of this is that this is the first draft written in a month, and mm-hmm. you know I am going to hopefully get some uh, good thoughts today from you and uh, turn it into something a little bit more polished. Um, yeah, because you know when you when you bring up authors that I admire. And, you know, would aspire to be like, that's a little intimidating because, oh, for sure. you know, it's I've uh, I've read uh, your polished work. I've read their polished work. And here is my unpolished. <laughs> sure. It's a little intimidating uh, to, you know, give it to people that you respect when you know it's not perfect. And yeah. that's, you know, you got to be comfortable with that. To, to do you your justice it is an intensely brave thing. A, to to uh, finish a book. B, to try to finish a book on a really short timeline. C, mm-hmm. to do it 12 times. 
uh, which is bonkers because after I finished my book, I descended into like a full on coma for probably at least a month. Um, oh, I'm there. I'm there, man. Uh, and, um, and D to, to give it to friends and people and ask them to like, uh, rip, rip some holes in it is, uh, is an intensely frightening thing to do. So congratulations. Good on you. Thank you. I am brave. You're right. You are. Yeah. I, I really <laughs> want to butter you up and prepare you because I do have yep. some thoughts on ways that we Perfect. can make this better. Uh, I do want to say right at the front that recognizing that since this is a, a first draft, uh, the things that I want to focus on are, uh, bones. Um, mm-hmm. like in, in my opinion, like making the prose really sparkle or making the mm-hmm. dialogue really super engaging. That is skin and eye color and hair type stuff, uh, on the right. body of this work. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the beats of the story, the arrangement, uh, what gets, uh, what gets contained and what's get, what gets left out. Those are like the important, those are the, the, the superstructure on which everything else is going to hang. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, with, with one exception, um, that is a technical thing that kind of bugged me throughout. So we'll start with the, the technical thing that bugged me. Um, are you familiar with the term head hopping? Head hopping. Yes. And this was one of the first novels that I've actually done, uh, that is, uh, from sort of multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, within the same chapters, even sometimes, uh, even within the same uh, pages and paragraphs, uh, we're jumping from person to person. And I could definitely see how that could be confusing. It was confusing for me. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I want to get into this a, a little bit for the for the benefit of anybody who is not uh, yeah. already educated on the subject. Typically in, in fiction, you'll, you have one single perspective that is consistent throughout a scene um, in order to make things fairly frictionless for the reader. Um, this is pretty consistent. Even when you have an ensemble piece like miserable company, you'll break the character perspectives with like a line across the page or a double line break or a chapter break. Uh, so that it's always clear whose head we're in. Uh, and the way that I've heard it described is that, uh, the perspective, the character perspective that you're in at any given time is like playing in a particular musical key. Uh, so like Felix is playing in the key of C And then if you switch very suddenly to Siren, who's playing in the key of A, then Mm. it's very jarring and uh, disruptive on the reader's side. Mm. So in future drafts, I would like to see that cleaned up a little bit. There are two, there are kind of two ways that I would recommend going with it because I I don't think that the having multiple character perspectives inside of the same scene uh, works, or at least it doesn't work for me. Mm, um, yeah. I would recommend either very tight, single person perspectives throughout a scene, which would allow you to really uh, dig in hard on the character stuff. Um, or you could go like full on Terry Pratchett ham and have a an omniscient narrator character mm-hmm. who is relaying everything to us. And that kind of lets you cheat because you can then include... Uh, the the thoughts of multiple characters at a given time, um, but it's it's a little bit tricky to pull off. I think you could do it, um, and I think even that the superstructure of the book allows you to do it because I think that you could write this narrator voice as Misery, Eric's mom, mm-hmm. um, right. which I think would be really engaging and, and a fun way to take it, but obviously that's going to be up to you. Uh, just something that I wanted to bring up. Point number two, I think the fight ne- fight scenes could use uh, some work. 
Mm-hmm. The the thing that I want to focus on is clarity. There were a lot of times during this book uh, where I did not fully understand what was going on with the fight scene um, and felt like it needed a little bit more back and forth where there are threats to the characters that feel uh, real and perilous. And I recognize that I started off by saying that I would focus on the bones. And this is mm-hmm. this is very much a skin and eye color type type complaint. But uh, it is something that I think is going to need some attention in uh, in more drafts. Now we're getting to the more meaty stuff. Point number three, I want to see in the in the prose and in the voice in future drafts uh, more dread when it comes to oncoming threats. I just had a, a difficulty getting mm. into the feeling of a scene. Like like I've said before, and as is hanging over the whole the whole conversation, this is super. This is a first draft, and I would be shocked and amazed if a person could uh, like consistently deliver a feeling of dread for threats. Uh, in a mm. first draft, yeah. but it is something that would that would need uh, to come uh, in in later revisions, uh, because right now a lot of the reveals are just kind of revealed. Uh, there's there's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of buildup, and I would love to see some of these kind of pulled back, laying clues earlier on for what's going mm-hmm. on, letting it dawn on the reader, and then saying it plainly and dramatically uh, a couple sentences down the line. Let's see, and now. <laughs> Now we're getting to the uh, the meaty stuff, I think, uh, assuming that I'm reading my notes correctly. Sure. Um, we spend a lot of time on characters who will appear and disappear without actually impacting the story. Um, right. I'm thinking of Young Delicious and Sheriff Mutton Chops. I can't remember if that's his actual last name, Sheriff Allen something. And it's, it is extremely entertaining. Very fun to see them get their comeuppance. There we go. Mm. I landed it. Um, now you can't even cut it because I made a joke about it. Is it landing it if you say you landed it? I don't know. It's probably not. I understand. It's probably not. Um, uh, It is very entertaining, but their existences don't impact the the trajectory of the story. They don't intersect with the primary characters except for that one scene at the very beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think I would like to see more from them or maybe combine them into one character who is kind of hounding them throughout the novel mm. and and then letting them suffer their their just desserts and let's see point number five i so i admittedly i love it when the narration is super meta um mm-hmm. but it feels much weirder when it's coming from the characters i mm. think it would need to be a little bit tightened up um or uh, just pulled back on uh, the fourth wall breaking and the philosophizing in the dialogue. But that, again, is a personal taste thing. Structure stuff. Here we go. Here we go. Mm-hmm. I will say off the bat, this is what I was most nervous about. Um, <laughs> and I totally get it. It's, yeah. So I'm looking forward to figuring out how the heck I'm going to fix this thing. Oh, actually, no, I have I have an idea here. So mm. uh, anytime yes. that I'm working on story structure, the thing that I love to do is pick a movie that I know works on a structure level Mm -hmm. and and just kind of crib their beat structure i did uh, a little bit of pirates of the caribbean and face fakers game to to get myself started off in this story your beat structure is actually borrowed from avengers age of ultron which admittedly like not Mm. not not the greatest movie but you could do a lot worse than a joss (laughs) whedon uh, beat structure and i think that that superstructure will actually hang a lot of the stuff really well uh, because what you have here is uh, a team who is in a good place with maybe a couple of big issues, but they're lying just under the surface. They're not disrupting things. Things are good for the team right now. 
then step two, something external will threaten the team uh, and disrupt their equilibrium and make the big issues start to boil up. Mm -hmm. uh, step three, they confront their external threat, uh, but the big issues actually disrupt them enough that the threat wins. And now the team has fully uh, broken apart. They're in shambles. They have to go to Hawkeye's house. Step right. four, while they're combating the external threat, they have to work through their big issues. Uh, and then through this working through their big issues, they reunite, they become stronger and more authentic with one another. And then step five, the new and improved team faces off with a big threat and defeat them because of what they've been through and because now, now they trust each other in a firmer and truer way. The power of friendship. Listen, Digimon. All stories, all stories are eventually about the power of friendship. That's my yep. firm belief. The real treasure was the friendship all along. I think yes. that's the structure that you will benefit most from borrowing from because mm. i mean it's an ensemble piece it is about a team losing what they think makes them great and then having to build up uh better and stronger than they were before in this instance the thing that they think is making them work is eric and they need to figure out how to be themselves without him on the squad uh also with the fact that several characters are keeping some secrets from one another like meaningful mm. significant secrets uh, are in the hands of at least Siren. Gwen is keeping some stuff to herself. Felix is obviously a mess, like, constantly. And Bigby is kind of a disruptive force without needing to have a secret. Right there you have... Every character has enough of, like, a problem going on that you can kind of throw them all in a pot and generate conflict just from the uh, the combustible spark from that engine. If you if you pull some things back, like keeping Siren's secret for longer allows you to generate more dramatic irony. I'm just going to can I pull some some curtains back Please. for the, for yeah, the listeners? Go ahead. Uh, so huge, huge spoilers for Miserable Company. Um, <laughs> so Siren uh, being an extra dimensional being and also because she interacted with Misery at some point, uh, she knows why there are prophecies about Eric. It's because they exist in a fictional universe dreamed up by Isaac Paul, wink, wink. Uh, and uh, they are the like just the hammiest fantasy books that ever there were. Uh, and I mean, again, drawing the sort of truth comparison is maybe a little bit in bad taste, but I mean, he kind of deserves it. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, uh, so she has known all along the exact... Uh, arc that their team is going to go through. She knows the critiques that people are leveling at all of them, and she's using those to make herself a better person. But she has not told anybody on the Miserable Company about this secret. Mm -hmm. Gwen is keeping secret that she has a hard expiration date at 30 years old, which the mm -hmm. others don't seem to know about. Felix is poorly hiding an incredible depression problem. Um, and Bigby has made it clear uh, all throughout his existence that he's not really friends with you. He's just uh, an ally because his programming dictates that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the thing that breaks Eric when he is captured by his uh, ancestral enemy, the blue chaos demon Azure, is Azure also has his hands on the books, the Kingdom Wars series. And he shows them to Eric and Eric is like, oh, no, I'm actually a cliche and I'm meaningless and none of my decisions have ever mattered. Yeah. So that's that's the big secret that Siren has been keeping. Something that uh, I think would contribute to the structure. And this is my uh, my my second point here in my 
mm-hmm. uh, my my notes. I think we need to delay that reveal a little bit. Yeah. This this is maybe the the biggest change that I would suggest. I think that in order for this structure to work, uh, Eric needs to properly disappear from the narrative uh, when when he leaves the miserable company. Here's here's how I would. Um, I, I think the start of the book needs to involve the team doing something awesome because i think we're missing yeah. out a little bit on miserable company in their in their glory and the to, before uh, of the before and after exactly yeah. exactly yeah. you need you need the before uh you need that opening scene of age of ultron where the avengers are just clicking and everything is great the thor is pounding on captain america's hammer and Iron Man Combo is giving attacks. Captain America grief for saying fusion. language. Exactly. Fusion. I think the book is missing that scene at the start uh, to show us this like just balls to the walls, cliche fantasy action scene. And I think in uh, I think this is a really great opportunity to just have a ton of fun with it. Uh, just lampooning the the dorkiest things about fantasy with Eric wielding like I want to see Eric wielding a twelve foot sword, you know, um, yeah. and two of them, two of them, two, uh, dual wielding twelve feet yes. swords. Um, yeah, that I th- I think that is a key piece that's missing at the front. And then after that, um, as much as I do enjoy, like there are, there are some very funny beats with Eric when uh, the Gremlins tell Eric they're trying to convince him to do something to to man up and fight his way out and be the hero that he thinks he can be. And Eric says, I know just what to do. And then he curls up in a corner and weeps. <laughs> like, I I legit guffawed at that. That was very funny. Um, but I think that Eric's plotline through this through this book is actually kind of dragging it down. It's, it's betraying yeah. the premise a little bit. Because mm-hmm. the premise is, this isn't a story about it's Eric. It's not about him. Exactly. But, like, throughout the, the middle of the book, we're, we're all... The, the gremlins are trying to love bomb Eric into being his great self again. And at the end, uh, the dramatic choice that everything hinges on is Eric's. And then he gets to talk to God in a Wendy's. Um, (laughs) And I I think that probably needs to be pulled back because it kind of steals the show from your other characters who are out there doing great work. And it's also just, it's, it's tough to keep a plot line clicking when it's just Eric client crying in his prison cell. Um, Yeah. So lots of lots of speechifying too that I I tend yes. to like go into I this this critique uh, project has been really interesting for me because there are issues that keep cropping up um, that like if I'm not addressing then I'll just write the next book wrong too you know <laughs> um, and uh, that was actually one of the thoughts of mine was because I you can't really write the beginning until you write the ending until mm-hmm. you write the beginning you know and it's like I wasn't exactly sure where this book was headed and so that a lot of the plots that don't really go anywhere are sort of like rabbit trails that um, I was you know trying to see if they worked and they didn't end up working and so I abandoned them yeah, no, which is exactly what the first draft is for. This has done a really excellent job of finding the things that are the core of your story, uh, making it clear which things are kind of extraneous. I do think it's it's a bummer that if you do axe the Eric plotline, that you probably will lose a lot of the gremlin stuff. But uh, I think there are ways to incorporate them into the story. And at this point, kind of their main plot function is just to be teleporters to get the the crew from one side of the continent to the other. I think it's probably pretty easy to just 
slot that particular plot function under Siren's cloak of do anything. Um, right. Which, I mean, is is an easy fix. Um, yeah. And, oh, maybe the gremlins are the narrators. I don't know. One thing I was thinking was uh, if I were to expand this book, which I'm thinking about doing um, because I, I don't consider myself like a comedy writer, um, but this was fun to do and it was different. And um, I could see myself doing like a scalzy, you know, like taking the piss out of a genre and then doing like a straight genre. And Oh, yeah, um, I, I love that. One thing I was thinking of expanding this, delving more into like the real world in which the uh, the novel was written. This book is a work of fiction and, um, you know, getting more into, you know, misery and uh, the the author and the whole mechanics of like the timeline messiness that goes on. Ooh. I think that that would be a fun place for the gremlins to be to be moving in and working on because there is. Yeah, I mean, you c- you could go full on red shirts and let the protagonists <laughs> let the protagonists meet the author. I think that's an an interesting direction to go in, and I'm not sure how it, it would affect the the core through line of the book. Right? Um, right. I think it probably can coexist, but mm-hmm. my my focus is entirely on the core through line. Sure. Yeah. Just because, like, you got to get the. You got to get the center of the engine working before you have all of the bells and whistles. Uh, adding on to that, I think probably one of the one of the best ways to keep this like characters have secrets from one another, tension, um, big problem brewing type thing is that you save the reveal for the Kingdom Wars books until the start of the third act. The say that say the characters break into the prison after breaking the chains of Arnor and slaying the Blood Maw, and they roll up mm. to the prison. And they're fully expecting, like, we got the things that Eric needs. This is what this is what's going to bring him back into his power and glory. And they kick down the prison cell, expecting Eric to be waiting there with bated breath. And instead, he produces this like raggedy Kingdom Wars book and breaks down in tears in the corner. Um, I think mm-hmm. that can work well as your like Dark Knight of the Soul type beat, where right. the characters realize that maybe was was this all for nothing. Did we just waste mm. our entire lives? Oh, and also, did Siren know this whole time and she never told us? What the heck? Right. right. Um, yeah. That can. I. Th- I think that is probably the best place for that beat to go. But at the same time, it's difficult to sell like it was a fiction book the whole time. If you wait right. until the third act to spring it on you, uh, yeah. so that that would be a, a tricky thing to pull off. But I think you can do it. That is that would be where my head would go to make the structure work um as 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 currently devised a lot of the characters shenanigans you know that should really create conflict in this book i realized you know as i was writing it i'm like if i focus on this I'm going to get to 50,000 words and the book won't be done. And so a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, you know, like that Siren is dealing with and that Felix and everyone else is dealing with the sort of messed upness of them is sort of resolved in a chapter or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that rang authentic to me. It was just a, it was just a matter of like trying to clean up my messes and get to the end. Sure. Yeah. And, and, once again, totally normal and expected for a first draft that's done in a freaking month. I had another book I, I put out this year that was like 
there are too many balls up in the air here. I'm just going to end it on 50,000 words and just say, I'm going to finish it later, which I think is a very fair thing to do. And yeah. um, I mean, that was your experience with, uh, with the uh, face fakers game and mm-hmm. uh, to, to my remembering. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when I, when I first drafted it in NaNoWriMo, I did get 50,000 words in and I don't think I had gotten, I had written my way out of the first act. <laughs> and I just yeah, threw it yeah. down. It's cool because like, again, it raises so many like questions of letting your characters off too easy um, is a really troubling thing because, yeah, I mean, that's not how life works. And as much as I would love to uh, give the characters an easy time of things, it doesn't feel earned when they emerge from that and like experience triumph over their uh, personal issues absolutely and i mean i think that'll come that'll come in later drafts i wanted to give you a heads up on some of the things that would would definitely need work um which i've i've already done that's that concludes my critiquing um except that uh uh, i did want to give you a heads up that slash fic uh is a little bit misused in here um slash fic refers specifically to same-sex pairings fanfic is uh everything else and they actually don't need a specific term for fanfic where multiple different characters bone. That term is that's just, just fan fanfic. fiction. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, you can you can probably tell I don't spend a lot of time in that world. Um, uh, like, and not that not that there's anything that I would hold against anybody for spending time in that world. It's just not. Yeah, it's just not my expertise. So I appreciate that. I I won't ask why you know, um, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Again, zero judgment zone. The book uh, touches on a number of like more subversive and controversial topics than I'm used to. You know, writing from the uh, cis white male Christian upbringing. Was there anything else that just sort of rang as like false to you or something I could work on? Well, the difficult thing about this question is that I'm also yes. coming from the uh, the cis white male. Uh, Christian perspective. So I I don't think it's my lane to answer that uh, up or down. Uh, I didn't notice anything egregious. Um, I appreciated that you were willing to kind of try to face on uh, those specific issues. And I think what we're talking about here is mainly that Felix is black and mm. or Felix is non-white. I'm not I'm actually not sure if right. I yeah. read correctly yeah. what uh, what his racial identification is. Uh, and that Siren and Gwen are hugely lambasted by by the fan base um, mm-hmm. because of the author's inherent misogyny. Um, I'm a, a little bit better versed in anti-misogyny work than I am in anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I thought it was pretty well done uh, with with Siren and Gwen to be directly lampooning obvious sexist portrayals and obvious sexist storylines. Uh, with with the way that you took those characters, um, and I thought they were a lot of fun. I thought they were really well uh, well written, uh, character wise. Whether whether the portrayal of Felix's non whiteness is up to snuff is is well outside my lane. Um, that's totally fine. But I didn't notice yep. anything egregious for whatever that's worth. Yeah, one of the things I was trying to wrestle with in the novel is the fact. So much of what I grew up on as like mainstay uh, genre fiction, uh, whether that's sci-fi or fantasy, um, so much of that was from uh, a sort of white hetero male normative uh, viewpoint. 
the the viewpoint that sort of sees uh, a lot of female characters as sort of adjacent and romance objects sees any sort of culture that is not Western European as sort of the other. And it's just really tough because I, I want to comment on those things. One of the amazing things about fiction is that whoever the author is and whoever the um, you know artist is, they must step outside of their viewpoint at some point. Um, they have to write someone who is not like them. Um, and I think that that's an incredible like empathy machine. And so I don't want to, I don't want to tell people like, no, you can't write this person or this character. It's been very much in the, in the zeitgeist recently mm-hmm. with D and D has just changed up their alignment system so that mm. orcs are no longer uh, default evil. Ah. <laughs> and uh, this has, this has raised quite a lot of uh, conversating about how in in Tolkien's world there is a literal objective ubermensch race of mm-hmm. blonde tall superhumans who are objectively mm-hmm. better at everything um, <laughs> and how the uh, the the dark-skinned clans are coming from a fire blasted land with no resources and are default evil and that's like there, there yeah. is a moment in every. I well, I, I say every. I don't think it is every. Um, I, th- I think every fantasy reader has the capacity to have a moment where they realize that there are no women in the Hobbit, and yeah. and to be shocked by that realization. Like I, I have that memory implanted in my head of when somebody said, "Did you ever notice that there are no women in the Hobbit?" And my whole worldview yeah. being like, "What?" But that's. <laughs> That's probably not important. And I mean, obviously, there are there are clearly very bad ways to fix that problem and sure. to to oppose yeah. that problem. And one of them is having Evangeline Lilly be your sole female character popping in just to have a weird elf dwarf romance uh, that yeah. is a is a uh, interracial romance metaphor <laughs> in your terrible <laughs> Hobbit trilogy. And then also there's like the C.S. Lewis having a nation that is only right when it's ruled by uh, four white kids from England and mm-hmm. every nation that is not Narnia is uh, is is brown and warlike. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know, there's, there's a lot of, it's, <laughs> it's just... There's unpacking to do, for sure. There's so and much it's... unpacking to do. There's a giant mountain. Yeah, and it's not necessarily that, like, you know, the, the people who wrote the stuff that we grew up on are, like, necessarily trying to be evil but at the same time, like they're bringing stuff to the table that is unconscious the same way that we are. Keep keep reading outside of your comfort zone a little bit. Inherent to writing is the fact that you are only working with the stuff that is inside of you, which is terrifying on every kind <laughs> of level. Um, yeah. But specifically is terrifying in the knowledge that like we we all have some level of uh, racist bias in us, um, at least certainly certainly in white culture. I can't speak to non-white cultures and and their experience of racism. Tolkien and Lewis and any other number of cishet white dudes who wrote fantasy did not set pen to paper intending to advance and defend white supremacy, but they did accidentally. That's that's what you do when when you're not consciously trying to oppose it. And I think that's what you're trying to do. And that's a that's a valiant and noble goal. Um, that nevertheless has to be undertaken with a lot of care. Again, I'm so brave. I, I get that. 
I you're, get that. I mean, you so can keep brave, saying Paul. it. You can keep saying it, and it'll continue to be true. Exactly. I think that this is a pretty normal thing to say, but like you know, people from our culture, we tend to be people pleasers, uh, and we tend to write uh, so that people will like us and think that we're you know uh, very empathetic and cool and kind and all this stuff, um, and that is simultaneously the draw of fiction where you get to like show off to the world of like, oh, look how cool my soul is. And at the same time, like when you go out and like start uh, actually talking about things that are difficult and admitting to your own inner difficulties and potentially like, you know, stepping on some toes and just being wrong sometimes, that's like you said, it's terrifying because uh, suddenly people see the ugliness uh, that's inside you. And I think in the end, the best thing you can do is sort of stop navel gazing so much and thinking about yourself so much and just think about like, hey, let's tell a good story. Let's get it out there. If it's wrong, people figure it out. For sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you want to be careful. Yeah, it is important to be careful and it's important to invite perspective and and mm-hmm. pay for perspective uh, that that you don't have. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh a lot of white white authors get in significant hot water because we we don't invite the perspectives of uh, of people who don't have our same life experience, and there is yeah. kind of this assumption that well, if it's if it's important, then I'm sure I can imagine myself into the correct answer, which is which is coming from a place of privilege, and we got to deconstruct that. The J.K. Rowling uh, tweets, uh, you know, issues and stuff. It's like some some things we just don't have like a good perspective on. If there's something that you know I haven't done a lot of you know study into and uh, haven't gotten like other people's opinions on, maybe I should just not talk about it and just yes. like not you know try not try to like air my opinion as though it's uh, you know the fact. So yep, Twitter proverb: shutting up is free. <laughs> Oh, man. Dude, um, is there anything else you wanted to cover? Um, Anything else do you think I could spruce up? One thing that I I want to see spruced up in future revisions, again, if you come back to it, um, Mm -hmm. is uh, for their choice to go on this big old journey to fulfill Eric's destiny be less of a like the the convoluted chicken becomes the egg that hatches the chicken that hatches the egg the thing. It didn't, yeah. it didn't super work for me. And mm-hmm. uh, since this is uh, a character grounded ensemble piece, I, I would really love to see that decision come out of character motivation rather mm-hmm. than this like uh, logic puzzle finger trap type of yeah. um, paradox. And I mean, I, I don't think that would be a tough thing to solve if it's just some, if it's a mission that they're already on or if. Felix wants to slay the blood moth for his reasons and mm-hmm. Gwen wants to break the chain break the chains of Arnor for her reasons and then Siren mm-hmm. is pushing them to go to uh um Uthian Fest yes. uh for uh for her reasons that she is yeah. being super cagey about that eventually uh. comes out in the in in the big uh reveal um uh-huh. I I think it's a pretty easy problem to fix it would just require some rewriting and uh and it would add a lot to the story to have mm-hmm. uh these characters going off on this on this big adventure not specifically so that they are fulfilling Eric's destiny but uh out of out of their own desires and motivations 
No, that's that's a really good point. Um, I think that the simpler uh, you can make a character's motivations, the better, uh, generally. And um, yeah, because people like they don't go to war out of some abstract ideal. You know, we go to like we we fight for things uh, based on like pretty primal human emotions. I came across like those characters motivations later. Uh, Welsh separatists uh, slash, uh, you know, um, uh, people looking for meaning in life, all kinds of different things. So, yeah, there is a there's a lot there um, that came later in the book and I wish could have been incorporated earlier. There is there is a there is a lot of like switching around to do. But I yeah, it sounds like it sounds like the bones are there to sort of accomplish that uh, simplifying. And yeah, I would say you've got at least a good 180 of the bones that you need. So that's only like 26 <laughs> bones that you're missing. And that's easy to find. Right. You can make those out of yeah. sticks. Hey, thank you so much for dropping by um, Chandler. And uh, where can people find you online? I am at Chandler J. Birch uh, everywhere that I can be found. That's Chandler like on Friends, J like the letter, Birch like the tree. Um, mm. I am one of these days going to give up on Facebook, but it's not yet. Uh, mostly I'm on Twitter. Um, I think I probably have an Instagram that I'm not on super at all. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you can find me all of all of those places at Chandler J. Birch. You can find my book, The Face Fakers Game, on Amazon. There might be still some copies at Barnes & Noble, but I haven't checked. Mm -hmm. um, it is Oliver Twist plus Magic minus the boring parts. Uh, buy it if you're into books. Um, I think that's everything. Um, I don't have any uh, work coming out because uh, I've got a seven-month-old uh, who yeah. is currently snoozing. Yeah, she's currently oh. snoozing, according to this monitor. Um, <laughs> and uh, and also, the pandemic has completely melted my brain. Um, but I'm about mm -hmm. 25,000 words into um, a f fantasy western that is also a deconstructionist Ooh. take on, on Chosen One Fun. tropes that I'm really excited to do. My current yeah. working title is... Uh, let me see if I can get this correct. Uh, Star Wars Revenge of the Last Airbender. Um, <laughs> Dude, I can't wait. That's awesome. I also yeah, can't wait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, man. Whenever uh, people keep telling me like, oh, this must be such a great time to be a writer. They're like, you must be getting so much done. With oh, other... my Lord. <laughs> it's like with those it's like, people. Yeah. And it's like man the the ever-present stress of death you know must make <laughs> for such easy writing times like no it's it's really cool oh um, yeah <laughs> yeah uh, oh man yeah it's definitely easy to get into this meditative generative creative state while the planet sure. is on fire trauma trauma yeah. is great trauma is great everybody writes best when they're under trauma yeah that's uh, that's probably the case <laughs> Dude, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I love to talk story structure stuff. Um, it's so love much it. easier than writing. <laughs> no, dude, I, I appreciate your input. And uh, man, I can't wait, to, can't wait to make these stories better. And uh, I look forward to your next work. Oh, thank you. I look forward to seeing what you come up with after these revisions. Let's hope. Let's hope. Rubbing our hands together. <laughs> All right. See you later, man. See ya.